Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Perhaps the most difficult question I've been asked by a non-Christian has to do with the subject of suffering. The basic question is simply this. How can a good God make and maintain a world full of suffering? Now that basic question can be phrased several different ways. Sometimes it's put like this. There are innocent people who suffer, so how could God possibly allow that? Especially in light of the fact that many people who suffered during a war had no choice in it. They were innocent. So how can God allow innocent people to suffer? Another form of the question has to do with natural disasters. There are floods and famines, tornadoes and cyclones and earthquakes. And again, there are innocent people who have no choice in the matter, and yet they suffer. How can a powerful God allow epidemics to suffer, cause suffering among so many people? Or take another instant. Babies are born blind, deaf, deformed, and defective. How can a good God do that? Why doesn't he prevent death, disaster, disease, and deformity? Sometimes the problem is presented in terms of a proposition, and the proposition goes like this. If God is all good, he would destroy evil. If God is all-powerful, he can destroy evil, but evil is not destroyed. Therefore, there is no good, all-powerful God, or either God is not all-good or not all-powerful. Which is it? C.S. Lewis expressed the dilemma this way. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness, power, or both. End of quote. So here's the question. How can an all-good, all-powerful God Allow the suffering of innocent people. What is the Christian answer to the problem of pain? Well, let me begin by saying there are no easy answers to this question, not even for Christianity. And maybe there's no final answer to this question. However, there are some observations that can be made from a biblical point of view, that I think puts this whole problem in perspective. So what I want to do 
is discuss two basic things. The first is why did an all-good, all-powerful God allow suffering? And secondly, why doesn't he stop it? In other words, the first great question has to do with the causation, the cause of suffering, and the second has to do with the cessation or the stopping of suffering. So those are the two aspects of this problem I'm going to try and address. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. The first point I want to discuss is the cause of suffering. What is the cause? That'll help us think through this problem. And while you're turning, let me suggest that God did not begin by creating evil. The biblical account of the beginning of God's creating the world is that he created it without evil and without suffering. Originally, there was no sin in the Garden of Eden. The problem is that man chose to disobey God. And when he did, sin entered the world, and with it, suffering. That's the point of Genesis 3. I'm going to begin reading at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, that is Satan who tempted Eve, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, not to eat, you shall, you commanded you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. To put this passage in context, remember that God created the Garden of Eden, told them they could eat of any tree except one. There was no sin, there was no disobedience, and there was no suffering. But the minute they chose to disobey God, then sin entered, that's the very nature of sin, and with it, suffering. So in this passage I just read, God says to Satan, you are cursed. God says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow. In pain you will bring forth children. He says to Adam, in toil you shall eat. 
So the origin of the suffering was man's disobedience to God. Most of the suffering in the world is man's inhumanity to man. Man's hatred causes war. Man's overindulgence to drink and drugs causes people to be killed and injured in automobile accidents. Man's greed causes the hoarding of surpluses while others starve. C.S. Lewis, the atheist who became a Christian, said that he was willing to go so far as to say that the wickedness of man accounted for most of the suffering in the world. He said, and I quote, when souls become wicked, they will certainly use this possibility to hurt one another. And this perhaps amounts to four-fifths of the suffering of man. It is not men, not it is man, not God, who has produced uh, whips and prisons, slavery, guns, bayonets, and bombs. It is by human avarice and human stupidity, not the, uh, the, of nature, that we have poverty and overwork. End of quote. Mankind, I say to you, has it within his power to create all this suffering and he has the power to solve it. You don't have to go any further than just the human level to see the cause of suffering. It's our choice very often, not exclusively, I'll get to that in a minute, but most of it is caused by human beings Amen. and their inhumanity to man. Furthermore, if we had our wits about us, we could solve a lot of suffering. For example, there's a lot of suffering in the world just because of hunger. I first spoke on this subject years ago, and I have notes from that first time I spoke on this subject. I've spoken on it several times since. But I, it caught my attention as I was preparing to speak today. And I don't know when I first did this or how I got it in my notes, but I had in my notes that the population of the world in 2010 would be 8 billion people. It is now 2019. And I asked Siri this morning, what's the population of the world? She knows everything. <laughs> and she said it's 7.7. .7. Interesting. But now what intrigued me about my notes was this. Somewhere I heard, found out, I usually document stuff, in this case I didn't, that it is possible that we could feed that many people. As a matter of fact, what I had was that we could feed up to 40 billion people at the level of the present U.S. diet. So we could solve this problem if we would just get our wits about us. Now, my simple point is, what's the cause? Human choice. But that doesn't explain everything. Some suffering is caused by nature. Uh, there is suffering caused by natural phenomena, like storms and birth defects, produce a great deal of suffering every year. So how do you explain that? 
Now, this gets a little theological, but very biblical. I am suggesting that all this sin and suffering in the world didn't exist until man, human beings, chose to sin. But if you understand what the scripture teaches about that, you are aware that when humans chose to sin, humanity then fell into sin, which produces the suffering, and creation fell into sin. The whole world fell. The creation, I don't mean the whole world populated by people, I mean the whole created world. We live in a sin-cursed world. For example, Paul said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the Son of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our body. That is a quotation from Romans chapter 8. But did you hear what he said? The whole creation, not just human beings, the whole creation, he says, is subject to futility. He spoke of the bondage of corruption. The whole creation is in a state of corruption because of man's sin. God did not originally create this sin. Disease, death, are the environment in which we live today. There was no disease, deformity, distress, death in the Garden of Eden until our original parents chose to sin. And after the fall, the world was changed. What we live in today, in terms of nature, is the result of sin. It is not God that caused that. It is human beings. Now, somebody's going to object to what I'm saying. I know because they've objected to me because I've talked to them privately. And they're going to say, well, God chose to give man a choice. So it's all God's fault. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, I had a professor in seminary who said, you know, there's any number of possibilities. Let's pick a number, 500 possibilities. Uh, God chose possibility, let's pick a number, 233. Out of all the possibilities, he chose that one. So the question is, why did, why did he choose that one? Why did he choose... Why didn't he choose uh, 232 or 234 or 460? Why did he choose 233? That's the question. And the answer is, God wanted to create a creature that 
would have fellowship with him and would voluntarily choose, key word, to love him. In order to do that, he had to create a being with choice. And if he did that, there would exist the possibility that the creature would make the wrong choice. And that, I submit to you, is what happened. To get the desired end of a creature who would voluntarily have fellowship with him, who would choose to love God, there had to be a creature who had choice. Let me put it like this. To eliminate all evil, the possibility of choice would have to be eliminated. Remember, I'm saying the cause is human choice. So to eliminate it, we have to eliminate human choice. If we eliminated human choice, then he's going to have to reduce us to robots or computers. How would you like to be a computer? Would you prefer to be a Mac or an Apple? That's a whole nother debate. <laughs> you see, that's the problem. That's the whole issue. So we if, if that happened, you know what we'd say then? If computers could do this. God didn't give me a choice. I don't know how many times I've gotten into this kind of a discussion. And... and uh, I would, and I'd say to people, look, if God, if God eliminated evil, he'd have to eliminate choice. That's the key word here. And if he eliminated choice, he'd make, have to make you a machine. And then he could manipulate you. And then you know what you would say? God didn't give me a choice. And I have said on many occasions to people, you know what? God can't win either way with you. <laughs> it's true. Uh, C.S. Lewis, that um, atheist who became a Christian who taught at Oxford and Cambridge, said, It seems that we are hard to please. We treat God as the policeman treats a man when he is arrested. Whatever he does will be used as evidence against him. <laughs> That's the way we treat God. No matter what you do, we're going to use it as an evidence against you. All right, let me illustrate this problem like this. Let's suppose a company purchased a very large, expensive computer. And the manufacturer of the computer gave the new owner a manual and said, you're to operate this machine based on this manual. And the owner took the manual and threw it aside and then randomly started pushing buttons on this computer until the computer ceased to function. The computer simply malfunctioned and ultimately broke down. Let me ask you a question. Whose fault was that? You're going to blame the manufacturer or the owner? That's our problem. And that puts it in perspective. This has to do with choice. Now, the next objection is going to be, all right, 
But why was the choice so great? And why was the consequences so great? And that's the problem. All right, so we have a choice, but the consequences are so enormous. Why is there such devastating consequences as heaven and hell? If you take the Bible at face value, that's what you have to say. It's what it teaches. And the answer to that is bound up in the nature of choice. If you have a small choice, there are small consequences. So you have to choose between Coke and Pepsi. How many of you would choose Coke? I'm just interested. How many would choose Pepsi? We're evenly divided. I'm a Coke. All right, so what's the difference? You know? You're, we're both going to get the same amount of calories and damage to our health, but that's another subject. That's a small choice. Um, I've really struggled with giving you the next illustration, but before I do, I don't know whether I should do it or not, but just to illustrate the Coke, suppose the choice were between an apple and arsenic. That's a big choice with big consequences, right? I hesitate to do this, and I'm going to get criticized for doing it, but I'll blame it because I'm quoting somebody else, all right? I, I don't know, some guy named David DeWitt, I found this somewhere, he wrote a book, Answering the Tough Ones, and here was his illustration. Without results, choice is insignificant. Just think about that. That was a very good thought. Suppose I offered you one of two chocolate candy bars, a Hershey bar, or a Nestle bar. And if the result of eating one is the same as the result of eating the other, then the results of choosing one is the same as the result of choosing the other. In that case, the choice would be insignificant. But let's imagine a situation in which the result of your eating one would be very different. Suppose one item I offered you was a chocolate candy bar and the other was a chocolate-flavored X-Lac. <laughs> I think you got the point. <laughs> he goes on to say, then the choice would be significant because the results of eating the two would be very different. If God is going to give man real choice of following him or not, then the results of that choice must be real, to which I agree. Now, I can sum up everything I've said so far with one word. Have you figured out what that one word is? Choice. Choice. I've been talking about the cause of suffering. And I'm suggesting the cause of suffering is choice. So far, so good. I said there were two questions I wanted to deal with. All right, so it's happened. Why can't God stop it? That's the second question. Not the cause, but the cessation. Why can't God just step in and turn it off and stop it? Before I delve into this, let me suggest that I'm not sure anyone has all the answers to this. This is a very tough question. I think the cessation of evil is the most difficult question, not just for Christianity, but for all of life. 
I think the philosophers have the same problem. How do you explain where it came from and how to stop it? Well, forget the Bible for a second. Go answer that. That's tough stuff. Well, let me give you what I think is the biblical answer. And we're going to have to get a little theological here for a second. For one thing, if God eliminated all suffering and evil in the world, he would of necessity have to eliminate its cause, which is choice, which is us. So just think about that. If my analysis of the cause is correct, for God to stop it, he would have to eliminate us. People cause most of the suffering, and if the cause of suffering is to be eliminated, people must be eliminated. The story of Noah demonstrates that if God removed actual evil, but left potential evil behind, actual evil would soon return. So even if God did this, it wouldn't solve the whole problem, necessarily. Uh, many have dramatically pointed out that if God eliminated all evil at midnight, but he left just a few people left, then at 12.01 it'd be right back. <laughs> so it should be pointed out that God can do that. God will do that. I read a passage from the book of Revelation earlier before the sermon today that talked about the fact God's going to eliminate all suffering. There will be no more pain. He will wipe away all tears. It says that in Revelation chapter 21. And then why doesn't he? Well, according to Peter, he's waiting for you to turn to him. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3 as to why God is so patient. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some have counted slackness, but is long-suffering, another word for patience, toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, by delaying the return of Christ and the elimination of all suffering, then God is extending the opportunity for people to turn to him so they can be forgiven of their sin. So God can do it. God will do it. He's just patient in the meantime. So my point is that in order to eliminate suffering, God has to eliminate people. Well, let me make another suggestion. Let me talk about just the elimination of evil for a second. Uh, from a biblical point of view, God, as I just mentioned, will one day eliminate suffering. But the ultimate answer to the problem of pain is just that. God will one day eliminate it. He's going to do that. He does have the power and he will do it. But he's going to have to change us to get it done. Because we're the problem. Our choice is the problem. So in that day, there will be no more choice. Peter puts it like this. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, 
What manner of persons ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved uh, with a burning fire and the elements melt with a fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness will dwell. So from the biblical point of view, temporal suffering will one day be eliminated. You see, from a Christian point of view, from God's perspective, we're not in the land of the living, headed toward the land of the dying. We're in the land of the dying, headed toward the land of the living. And if you get that little perspective straight, you understand God's going to solve all this in due time. How are we doing? Let me sum all this up and try to put it in perspective. God did not originally cause human suffering, but he did allow it. And in his design, he did allow it so to give us free choice. Nevertheless, one of these days, he's going to eliminate it by changing us so that we don't have choice anymore. So what's the key word today? Music to my ears. You got it. I want you from henceforth and evermore, every time this question comes up and somebody says, suffering, you say, got it. The issue is choice. Human choice brought suffering into the human race. Human choice perpetuates it. And choice can eliminate it, which will only be done in eternity. It's choice. It's choice. So God has no choice but to allow it in order to accomplish giving you a choice. It's all about choice. I heard a story once that I think just puts this in perspective like nothing I've ever heard. A man went into a barber shop to have his hair cut and his beard trimmed. As the barber began to work, they began to have a conversation. They talked about a lot of things, and they eventually touched on the subject of God. The barber then said to his client, I do not believe God exists. Why do you say that? Asked the customer. Well, you just have to go out and look at the street to realize God doesn't exist. Tell me if God exists, why there are so many sick people? Why why are there so many abandoned children? If God exists, uh, there would be neither suffering nor pain. I can't imagine a loving God who would allow all these things. The customer thought for a moment, but didn't respond because he didn't want to start an argument. The barber finished the job. The customer paid the barber and left the shop. Just after he left the shop, he saw a man on the street with long, stringy, dirty hair and an untrimmed beard. He looked dirty and unkept. The customer turned around, went back into the barber shop, and said to the barber, you know what? 
I've decided barbers do not exist. (laughs) And the barber said, how can you say that? I'm standing here and I'm a barber. I just worked on you. No, explained the customer, barbers do not exist because if they did, no people with dirty, long, untrimmed beards like that man outside would exist. Ah, but the barbers do exist. So what happens when people do not come to me? That was his explanation. Really? You see, that's exactly right, said the customer. That's the point. God does exist, and that's what happens when people do not come to him and look to him for help. That's why we have so much pain and suffering in the world. Amen? Amen. And you're going to remember one word, and the word is? Let's pray. Father, all of us have been troubled by the pain and suffering in the world. And yet we understand your word. We see what you're trying to say to us and what you've given us. So, Lord, my prayer is that you would uh, give us your perspective. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and we admit that. So give us a transformed life by a renewed mind that thinks like you think, talks like you talk. And equip us to boldly tell people, that there is a reasonable answer. It's painful, but it's there. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.